All right, we got, uh, let's see, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 through 19 today, just as a, just as a Bible reading schedule. It says, Pursue love and desire spiritually gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, in the case of prophesying, there, I'm going to stop right there. There are two types of prophecy that we can speak of. One is foretelling. That's what the prophets of old did. That's what John uh, the Revelator did in the book of Revelation. They were foretelling. They were saying something that is coming. And I do not personally believe that we prophesy in that manner anymore. In other words, the second type of prophecy would be to foretell. And that is to say that this is God's revealed word to us and that we are to speak God's word to the people of the earth and to tell them of the things that have been revealed by the prophets and by the apostles. And uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's what I believe as far as that. But he asks us to prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. We speak the word of God to people and we're, we're building them up. We're teaching them things and uh, we're comforting them. So that's what he's saying there. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now he's saying the word tongues, tongues, tongues. And I want you to know that the word tongues is the same as the word for languages. And we're going to see where the languages and the tongues of the world came from today when we speak on the Tower of Babel. And that's why I picked this particular passage to read. But when he is speaking about tongues, he is speaking about known languages. And that will be explained in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came down, the people spoke in tongues. And they spoke in tongues from all over the known world. And he lists the names of those languages. So this is what he's speaking about here. If my wife stands up in this congregation and starts speaking Japanese, very few people here are going to understand what she's saying. If Rhoda stands up and starts speaking um, Arabic, even fewer people are going to understand. Or we could have Sergio or one of the other people that speaks their own native language or their second or third language. Nobody's going to know what you're saying. And he's saying, why would you do this when we could be edifying people by preaching God's word and prophesying out of that? Verse 7, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will you be known what is spoken? Uh, for you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Verse 15, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say, Amen, at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with more tongues than you all. Paul spoke many languages. We can infer that he, we know that he spoke uh, Hebrew because he was trained in rabbinical studies. He also spoke the lingua franca of um, Palestine, which was Aramaic. He certainly spoke Greek. And probably he spoke Latin as well. He was a cultured man. And then he probably spoke his own dialect of the land where he came from, which was uh, Tarsus and Sicilia. So he spoke more tongues than all the rest. Not in unknown languages, but in known languages to him, unknown to other people. That's what he's saying there. And then in verse 19 he says, Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. We don't profit anybody when we speak in tongues in a church. It does nobody profit. And Paul even calls it thinking like children when we do this. Instead, you want to speak in a tongue, speak it to yourself or speak it to somebody that speaks that language. But instead, use the Bible properly and teach this. And this is where our life lessons come from. And I've said this on several uh, 
previews or uh, you know the opening prefaces to the sermons before that when I preach it is always from the Bible and about the Bible. I'm not into big life applications because if you know your Bible, you will be able to apply it to your life, and you don't need somebody giving you a, a sermon that you know tells you how to live for the week. Why would you do that when you know the Bible? The Lord will instruct you on in how to live for the week and how to live within your marriage and how to live with your family members and to manage your finances. And unfortunately, as my wife knows, it took me many years before I came to that point. And so it was a lot of catching up. And I know there are other people here as well that are catching up on life, learning their Bible. So uh, one more thing that I'll say about that issue is that um, from time to time, people come into here and they start at a certain point. And if you want to actually see how the Bible unfolds, all of these are taped by Sergio and they're on YouTube and you can watch them from Genesis 1-1 all the way up to where we are today, Genesis 11-1. It's about 28 sermons, and you figure a couple hours each, but it will help you to understand how God is slowly un unfolding his plan before your eyes. And it really is an amazing thing, amazing journey. And I've learned more doing these sermons than I learned in reading the Bible to myself probably 50 times. I mean, it is just a wonderful thing. Um, so we've, we've got that instruction and we've got these things that we will uh, uh, hold in our hearts as far as the Word of God. Before we get started on the sermon, I want to, would you like to read a, a psalm? Are you okay today? All right, we have one more psalm to read, which would be the 147th psalm, and we're going to let Cena read that. Right here, 147th okay. psalm. It says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rains for the earth who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders, and he fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and waters to flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt with us any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. This day in history, I want to give you a few things that uh, happened. In 1851, last week we talked about the um, air conditioner was... Uh, patented in 1914. Now, before I say anything about that, I gave this day in history for last Sunday, and when I clicked on the computer, I clicked on the S on the uh, week, and I actually clicked on Saturday. So everything that happened, I said happened last Sunday, actually happened last Saturday. So make your little uh, adjustment in your computer. I apologize for that, but this week I made sure that the S was the Sunday S and not the Saturday S. So this day in 1851, the mechanical refrigerator was patented by Dr. John Gorey. So last week was the air conditioner. This week is the uh, mechanical refrigerator, a couple things that have helped us immensely. Then in 1915, and this doesn't mean anything at all to me, but there are a couple people that will enjoy this. I know my son will. Babe Ruth hit his very first major league home run while playing for the Boston Red Sox. So he's a big sports person. It went from my father right over my generation and down to my son. And... Uh, so uh, that's what happened. And then in 1937, the German airship, the Hindenburg, crashed and burned in Lakehurst, New Jersey. 37 people were killed out of 97 people on that ship. And every one of those people thought that they were making a great voyage and they were going to uh, see their next day, and they didn't see their next day. 
And that lesson is something we need to remember each and every moment of our lives. A tree could, a branch could fall off this tree and crush anybody here right now. I mean, it's just the way of the world. We don't know when our last day is. And so we need to keep in our lives the constant reminder that we will be facing God from moment to moment. And we're in his presence right now anyway. Acts 17 says, in him we live and move and have our being. But we are going to see the sudden realization of that at some point. And so keep that in mind is that uh, it's a lesson that we all need to uh, remember. Now, today we're going to speak on the Tower of Babel, which is Genesis 11, 1 through 9. So just a few verses, and it's going to take us a little longer than normal, I believe. But I want to start out with um, asking, is anybody here like me? And this, is, this isn't, I'm not one of these people that likes to ask a lot of personal questions, but I do want to ask, does anybody here like Star Trek as much as I do? I, good, there's at least one here. I really, really loved growing up with uh, Captain James Kirk and Spock and all of that. And one of the things that I always asked myself, and this is a guy, you know, I was this big when it came out. Um, I always asked myself, there's all these languages on the world, and I knew all of these languages, but I never understood how they could fly off to Rigel 7 and everybody would speak English. And it never made any sense to me. Until the next generation came along, Star Trek The Next Generation, where they had what they called the Universal Translator. Well, apparently that's what Jim and Spock and everybody else had, too. And so they would just simply speak to each other, and it would go through a translating device, and the computer was able to make these things work. And it seems like fantasy. It seems like something that, oh, you know, and I grew up thinking, well, what a neat fantasy, when in fact we are actually living in the time where these things actually occur. I go onto Facebook and I've got friends from all over the world. I've got some that speak Hebrew and some that speak Greek and some that speak Japanese and Indonesian and uh, Arabic and uh, lots of other languages around the world. And they will post something on Facebook in their language to the, their friends that are back home or, or if they're living there. And all I need to do is highlight it and right-click on it and it'll come up with a little box and it says translate with Bing. And Bing goes in there and it translates word for word immediately what is being said, just like a universal translator. And then I was watching Nova on uh, PBS a couple days ago, and on Nova they were showing a guy that has uh, this device that he made, and he speaks into it. He says, you know, I want to buy um, uh, some crackers in English, and then he plays it back, and it automatically translates it to a person standing in the store, and it asks in Japanese, you know, I want to buy crackers. And then the guy says in Japanese, what type of crackers? And it translates it back into English. And he says, I'd like to buy rice crackers. And then it translates it back to him. And he makes his purchase and he leaves. And it's instantaneous, his voice being converted into Japanese. So we have these things that are actually happening in the world today, just like Star Trek predicted only, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So it really is, to me, an amazing thing to see these occurring. When I was with Sergio last week and he was doing some of the video processing, we started talking about something that happened in Russia and which bears on what's happening in America. And he pulled up this page and this page, and one translates into Russian, the whole page, and then it goes back to English. And he was going back and forth reading Russian and English. And then we wanted to know about the, I think it was the sugar magnolia tree, which was blooming outside of his house. And so he pulled up a page on the magnolia, and he had it translated immediately into Russian. So these type of things are making the world smaller, and they're leading us back to a point which was started all the way back about 4,000 years ago. There is one more thing that I want to bring up before I get into the sermon is the Wycliffe Bible Translators. I uh, actually went to join them, and I was going to go over and live overseas and translate the Bible into a language that does not have the Bible, and that didn't work out because something happened in our family, but it was something that I went to the training for it, and I learned how involved languages are. There's about 3,000 languages on the earth, and there's maybe 1,000 left that don't have any shred of the gospel at all. Nothing. And what they first do is they go in and they translate like the book of Mark. They pick one of them, and then they'll do the whole New Testament. And eventually, if the people are fortunate enough, they'll get the whole Bible. But some of these languages have only 300 people in it. So you can see it's a very complicated and expensive process, and it takes approximately 16 years to translate from somebody that has never known this language to go in, learn the language, have a facilitator that learns English, and they talk together. They translate from Hebrew and Greek through English and into their language. And it's, it's a long process. It takes a lot of devotion on people's part. And a guy that is with the Wycliffe translators was lying in bed a couple of years ago, and he suddenly had an idea. And he came up and he wrote a computer program called Adapt It. 
And you, for example, if you have 300 languages in Indonesian, there are 300 individual Indonesian dialects, he will have one dialect in his computer and there'll be another language that's very similar to it and he will push a button and it will automatically translate between these two. And so what used to take 16 full years now can be done in two years or less. And so the gospel is getting out almost at a geometrically quick rate to these people because of somebody's lying in bed thinking through a computer problem that has to do with languages. And this all bears on what we're going to talk about today. Jesus had said in Matthew 24, 14, he said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And the Wycliffe Bible translator, some of the people that were in there actually believe that they are ushering in the end of the world because it says, you know, all the tongues of the world are going to have the gospel and then the end is going to come. Now, whether every single language does or doesn't, doesn't really matter. The Indonesian people as a whole have it, and they can speak to each other in certain ways. So the gospel really is out there in the whole world now. So the end could actually come today. But they are working towards this goal in hopes of the bringing back of Jesus Christ. And seeing as how I brought that up, because people do believe, some denominations believe they're bringing back Christ, or uh, the Wycliffe Bible translators may bring it back. There is a way that we can know when Jesus Christ is literally going to come back to the earth, and it's explained in the Bible. When he was speaking to Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and killed those who were sent to you, how I've longed to gather my, uh, you together as a hen gathers his chick chicks under its wings. He says, I tell you, you will not see me again, speaking to Jerusalem, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's really up to the Jewish people to call on Jesus as their Messiah for Jesus to come back. Now that has nothing to do with the rapture. The rapture could happen today. But I just want you to know we are not ushering in the kingdom and we are not doing anything to bring Jesus back. It has to be the Jewish people and it will happen at some time. However, getting into the sermon now, within just a short 100 year period after the flood of Noah, the world had walked away completely from the knowledge of what had happened in the flood, the judgment on wickedness, and they had not only rejected God and the lesson of recent history, but they had actually come together to work against him and to establish their own society and their own religion apart from him. And that's the lesson of the Tower of Babel that we're going to be look, looking at today. And that brings us immediately into our text verse for the day, which is from Isaiah 28, it's verses 9 through 11. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought concerning the Tower of Babel is a tower to heaven. This is verses one through four. Verse one says, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Two terms are used here to ensure us to know that everyone on earth did understand each other. The first word is language, which is the Hebrew word safa, and it means literally lip. Everyone had the same lip. The second word used is speech, and the Hebrew word devarim is used, which means words. Now, it may interest you, and it may not, but I'm going to tell you anyway that the word devarim is the Hebrew name of the fifth book of the Bible, which is Deuteronomy. Now, if that seems odd to you, it's because the Hebrew name for biblical books is often a word in the first verse of that book and maybe even the first verse, first word at some times. In the case of Deuteronomy, the book begins with these are the words or Eleha Devarim. And so the word Devarim is given as the title of the book. These are the words which Moses spoke to the people of Israel. The first word of the Bible is Bereshit, and that is the name given to the book of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible, Bereshit. And then we have the book of Exodus, which they call Shemot, or names. Now these are the names, and goes on from there. The book of Leviticus is called Vayikra, which means and called. 
because it says at the beginning of Leviticus, now the Lord called to Moses. And then finally in the Torah, we have the book of Numbers, which is Bamidbar, or in the wilderness. And the reason why is because right in the first sentence it says, now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. So a general word from the first sentence of the book is normally, not always, but normally the title given to one of these. Whereas in the English, we use some concept that came from that book. Genesis, the genesis of languages, the genesis of man, the genesis of this and that. And so that's a concept that comes from there. In the book of Exodus, we use the concept of the redemption of the Israelites out of Egypt. In Leviticus, it means pertaining to the Levites. And finally, in Numbers, if you've ever read the book, you know that there are numbers and numbers and numbers and numbers. And so ours comes, the term numbers comes from the Greek translation, which is called arithmoi, or you hear the word arithmetic in there. So that's where that comes from. Anyway, now that we're through that, the whole earth had one language and it had one speech. The reason that two terms are given here, language and speech, is because they make up the two major parts of understanding communication. The words are the substance of the language. If I write this sentence, Charlie, go park the car in the yard. Anyone who reads English and they read those words will understand them, regardless of how they're pronounced. People in Korea, for example, may not speak English at all, but they can read English. They will read that sentence and they'll say, oh, Charlie, go park the car in the yard. And they know what is being said, even though they can't speak it. I can read Greek, I can read Hebrew, I don't know what they say. I can read Korean, I don't know what they say, for the most part on these languages. But that is the first part of the speech, the substance of what is being said. Now, if somebody comes from Boston, and he comes down to my house, and he says, Charlie, go park the car in the yard, I'm going to think he completely abused the sentence, because for some reason people from Boston don't know how to pronounce the letter R. So you see, that is the lip the speech part of that sentence. You have the two different parts of the communication. All right. When I went with my friend Joe to Thailand, his name is actually Song Claude, but we'll call him Joe. Um, I went to Thailand in the Laos with him a few years ago. And when I went, he wanted to buy some things for his wife. His wife had asked for some specific things. And so as we were going through these different stalls looking for him, he kept saying to the people, Wasase. Does anybody here know what Wasase is? And I kept hearing this word, and finally I said, you know, what are you looking for? Because maybe I can help. And he says, I want wasase. And eventually, I said, well, just write it down. He wrote it down, and he wrote these letters, V-E-R-S-A-C-H-E, Versace, right? But they can't pronounce it. So he can read, but he can't pronounce. And so we have two parts of the language. And this is important because I'm going to explain this a little bit later in the context of what the Bible is saying. The spoken part or the lip is how we speak the words, wasase, or Versace, which is probably completely different than the way they speak it in Italy. So even that may be a problem. I don't know. But it is how we form our mouth. It is how we use the muscles of our mouth, how the air passes through our mouth, all of these things. It includes all of the matter of speech that comes from our heads, through our mouths, past our tongues, and over our lips. So the Bible is telling us that the whole world had just one language and one way of speaking that language. And it should seem completely obvious to us that that's the case. Because who was left on the ark? Out of the entire world of people, only eight people were left. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three sons' wives. And because of that, they had one language and one lip, or one way of parking the car in the yard Charlie. All right. Everybody spoke the same. Now, whether you believe in Noah, whether you believe in the Tower of Babel or not, the exact same thing is going to happen with evolution. There was a point when there was one language on the earth and only one. And from a biblical perspective, the Bible does not teach this. I'm going to jump out a little bit. From a biblical perspective, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to say that that language was Hebrew. This is the original language of the world. And I believe that. And it is the language that God spoke to Adam. It is the same language that continued on through one group of people. And it gets its name from that group of people. Last week, I mentioned him. His name is Eber, the great-great-grandson of Noah. 
That's where the Hebrew language gets its name, is from this person, Eber. The language of the Hebrew people, though, was lost for all intents and purposes after the Babylonian exile, about 586 B.C. The Jewish people were exiled to Babylon, and at that time, they picked up the Aramaic language as their general speaking language. And even at the time of Jesus, when he walked in the land of Israel, he would have spoken Aramaic to the people, not Hebrew. Hebrew was only used in synagogues and for study, but it was not a commonly used language ever again after the Babylonian exile. Not until 2,500 years later, when a guy named Eliezer ben Yehuda who lived, he was born in 1858, and he died in 1922, he almost single-handedly resurrected the Jewish language for the people of the world. One guy, he arrived in Israel with his young wife, and he says, we are going to speak Hebrew from now on out. And he alone, he's honored. You go down streets in uh, different cities in Israel, it's the street called Eliezer ben Yehuda or whatever, because he's such a revered person for having resurrected this language, certainly done by the Spirit of God. There's no doubt about it. Today, it is the language of Israel, it is the language of the Jewish people, and I believe that it will again be the language spoken around the world in place of English in the millennial reign of Christ. If you believe some reports, Hebrew was actually proposed as one of the possible languages, national languages of America, along with Germany and English. And that wouldn't surprise me a bit, but God's plans come in his timing, and that will occur at some point in the future. The wee, wee, wee little book of Zephaniah, right towards the end of the Old Testament, actually tells us that this is going to happen. Here's what it says. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. This is the tribulation period, which I believe is coming rather soon in human history. He's saying he's going to gather the nations in there and he's going to pour out his anger on them. And then he says in verse 9, For then I will restore to the people peoples a pure language or a pure lip, that they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So the book of Zephaniah does say that the language of the world is going to be reunited and it will be the Hebrew language. The day has come for that pure language to be restored. It is already in the nation of Israel, and as I said, I am absolutely certain that it will be the universal language of the world in the future. I don't know if you know this, but if you are a pilot, and you, a commercial pilot, and you fly from America to Russia, or if you fly from America to China, or if you fly anywhere in the world, you land in Chile, you land in uh, Tobago, or wherever, you will always speak English when you are landing that airplane. Every air traffic controller and every pilot on earth knows English in order to land their plane. It's the universal language. And someday it will be the Hebrew language. I do believe that. Why do I say that? Because Jesus Christ was born a Jew. Jesus Christ lived a Jew. He died a Jew. And he was resurrected a Jew. And when he comes back, he is going to come back to his people, Israel. And he will be in the midst of them speaking in their language, which is the language of Hebrew. And if the law goes forth from Zion, as the Bible says it will, it will be in the Hebrew language. And so people will need to learn Hebrew. I don't, I'm not saying that all the other languages are going to be gone, but everybody is going to be speaking Hebrew at some point in the future. I honestly believe that's the case. Verse 2, And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now, depending on which version of the Bible you use, you may or you may not have a correct translation of this verse. I'm going to read it again. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. I use the New King James Version for my sermons. And what you just heard is not correct. It's wrong. If you use the King James Version, the New King James Version, or the English Standard Version, or some others, it will say they journeyed from the east instead of as men moved eastward. That was the NIV there. The NIV got it right. The reason why both options are possible from the Hebrew, which is Benase Am Mikadem. But we do know from the Bible, which is correct. First, the mountains of Ararat, which is the focus of the last story that we've reviewed, where Noah came to, is west 
it is not east of the plain of Shinar. And that's the area of Mesopotamia. So the people moved from the east to Mesopotamia. So if your Bible says it incorrectly, just make a little note that the correct possibility is that they came from the east and moved westward. I'm sorry, they came from the west and moved eastward. And secondly, this same term is explained elsewhere in the Bible. Genesis 13, 11, for example. And that will be coming soon to a sermon near you. But it does use the same terminology and we know that it was from the west to the east. So I just want to make sure you understand that when you read the Bible, people can translate things differently and they have to take the context of the Bible in order to understand it. As they traveled eastward, they came to the plain of Shinar. The land of Shinar is the same area that Cain dwelt in before the flood. And it is the same area which is in complete and absolute spiritual opposition to God, both symbolically and actually from that time all the way through to the very end of the Bible. It is where false religion got its falsehold, got its foothold, I'm sorry, and where Cain and his people rose up against God. And even to this day, the area is a hotbed of false religion and fighting against God and against God's people. All you need to do is look at a map of where the, air, the plain of Shinar is, and those people are fighting continuously, both against the Christians and Jews of the world. Okay, That is where this type of apostate religion comes from. And it is also the place where Israel was sent when they were disobedient to God. We read this in the book of Daniel, the first chapter, the second verse, it says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, meaning the king of Babylon, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So this is the area all the way back at the Tower of Babel where people were uniting against God. It is also where God's people are sent in exile. The word Shinar is mentioned seven times in the Bible. And the very last time that it is mentioned, it is speaking prophetically about a date which is future, even to us right now. This is in the book of Zechariah, chapter 5, and here's what it says. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift up your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket, and he threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. Wickedness is returning to the land of Shinar to come against God in the last days. It's important to follow the story that we are in today in order to understand everything that is coming in the future, including all of the trouble and all of the woes which are in the book of Revelation. We come to verse 3 now. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. These two verses, which are in this seemingly obscure passage about people who lived over 4,000 years ago, point to every false religion that has ever existed or that ever will exist on the earth until the Lord Jesus comes back and puts an end to all of them. I'm going to read them again and see if you can see this. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build a, ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the whole face of the earth. Now we're going to break those verses down. The first two words were, Then they... This is the impetus for false religion. It is the ideas and thoughts of man, spurred on by Satan, but coming from man's head. Now think of this. Joseph Smith in the 1800s says, I'm going to start a new religion. This comes out of his mind. And he says, I'm going to do this thing. And it's called Mormonism. This is one of the religions that 
does not fit with the biblical pattern. Then they said to one another, the idea comes from a person, and he says to another person, let's do this. And they agree on the terms. Yeah, that's a great idea. We're going to do it. So Joseph Smith says to Brigham Young, if we start this new religion, we can have all the wives in the world we want. We can go start a big place and we'll have this commune and all these people will be following us. Verse 3 continues. Come. Yeah, man. Here we go. We're going to get to work on this religion. Let us make bricks. We are going to make something with our own hands. Does anybody see where this is going yet? And bake them thoroughly. In Hebrew it says, Hava nil bena levanim ve nisrepa lisrepa. We have a little rhyming going on in those words, almost like they're doing something naughty. We'll make these bricks and we'll bake these bricks. We'll bake them through and through and we'll get to heaven. Yes, that's what we'll do. Not only will the, we make these bricks, but we will put them through the fire, just like a sacrifice that we should have made to our God. Verse 3 continues. They had brick for stone. Brick for stone. Let me ask you a question. Who made the stones? God made the stones. Who made the bricks? Man did. Do you see the difference? Let me take you forward to what God told the Israelites concerning the altar of sacrifice that they were to use. This is from the book of Exodus chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not only you shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use a tool on it, you have profaned it. Now, why would God say that that stone is profaned when somebody's worked on it? It's because you are adding in your works in order to please God. He made the stones. He says, pile the stones up. I've made them. I am doing everything for your salvation. And if you try to add into that, you have profaned it because you are saying, I am earning God's favor by doing this. Moses repeats this in Deuteronomy chapter 27, before the Israelites went into the promised land. And then in both Joshua chapter 8 and in 1 Kings chapter 6, we see the Israelites taking very careful care to follow this procedure. Once they did it at Mount Ebal, right after getting into the promised land and subduing Jericho and a couple little towns, and then once when they built the temple in Jerusalem. Now the temple in Jerusalem did have cut stone, but the it was all done in the quarry, and the Bible very carefully records that there was not an iron tool used anywhere at the assembly of the temple. And that's because God does not allow us to work to him, ever. So, do you see the significance of what's going on so far in these verses? Verse 3 continues, And they had asphalt for mortar. This is a mineral type of pitch. You see it all over America today. And when it's hardened, it forms a very strong bond, almost like cement. And it's commonly used in Assyria, even to this day, and they have found it on the mortar in brick that goes back to antiquity. The people were not just making bricks to work their way back to heaven. They were uniting them together in an attempt to reach God. You still might not see all of the symbolism, but every brick is a false religion, and every one of them is being united against the truth of God. We come to verse 4. And they said, Come, let us build us ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. The people rejected God's way of approaching him, and they decided that they could make up their own way to get to God. Has anybody here ever heard the term, all paths lead to God? This is where it started, right here in this verse. God has always, and he will always, reject this. Man does not work to God. God comes to man. Now let's go back over these verses and we're going to clarify what is happening here. The people have moved east away from God's presence just as man was cast east out of the Garden of Eden and Cain moved further east to the land of Nod, the land of wandering. And this is exactly the same as the disobedient Israelites who were cast out of God's presence to the east, to Shinar, to the place which symbolically represents 
exile and banishment from God's presence. In this land, which is apart from God, the people have determined that their way to God is the right way and have begun to build a tower to heaven, to the throne of God itself, working their way to heaven. And that is exactly what every single false religion on earth, every one of them, has in common. Works-based salvation. And not only is this a type of works-based salvation, but it is what we would call, in modern terms, ecumenicalism. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but you've heard of the World Council of Churches. These are supposedly Christian churches which are uniting into one cohesive unit. And at the same time, they are uniting with non-Christian religions in what is called religious pluralism. So everything just forms into one large tower. A tower is being built, and it's being built right before our eyes, where all of the world's religions are being brought together as equal in power and equal in truth. And the only religion which is unacceptable is a religion which is intolerant of untruth, the one with the exclusive claim the only one God accepts. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. My son is the only way, and there is no other. The Tower of Babel is being built again right before our eyes, and the United Nations is the largest force of this building, of this tower of confusion and chaos. It doesn't matter where you go on this planet. It doesn't matter what religion you look at. It will ultimately be a religion of working to please God. But the Bible, from the very first pages all the way to the very end, proclaims that it is God who has done all of the work, all of it, to reconcile us to him. No works are involved in it. And Paul sums this up in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God and not of works no works at all not of works lest any man should boast in other words when we get to heaven and we say why are we here we cannot say because I did this or I did this or I did this or I did this it is all about Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf and if we come up to the throne and we say I did this to earn God's favor then we are excluded from God's favor he has done the work and all we can do is accept it by faith. Verse 4 continues, let us make a name for ourselves, the people of the world. And I mean every false religion looks for their own glory, no matter how piously they seem to do it. This is the ultimate goal. I, even I, have earned my salvation. I have done the deeds. I have merited God's favor. I. But the Bible teaches a vastly different lesson all the way through it. We'll read this from Isaiah. Behold, this is the Lord speaking, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. And again, we read these words, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. We don't need a tower to get to God. He's already given us the holy city of Jerusalem. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. Verse 4 continues. Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We will build the tower. We will reach the heights. We will be like God and we will be gods. And we will unite so that our efforts will be united. Our deeds will collectively rule the world, and from this spot we will be the rulers. Whether it's a false religion like Islam or Mormonism, or a false political religion like communism or progressive liberalism, the goal is always the same. Shun God and work out our own salvation. Progressive liberalism. Do you mean America's Democrat Party? If you don't believe this, you don't have to trust me. All you need to do is read the writings of Barack Obama, his own writings, read the writings of Hillary Clinton, read the party platform. How many people here have ever read the Democrat Party platform? I have. I've got it on my computer. Read it and see what their agenda is and how it works against God. 
That is the way it works. And if that offends you, I'm sorry. You need to read their writings. Don't trust me on this. And one other thing about building this tower to heaven comes from the writings of the ancient Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. He said that they were not only defying God by attempting to work their way to him, which is my analysis, but they were also attempting to defy him should he ever presume to go back on his own word about not flooding the earth again. He says that their intention was to build a tower that was so tall that no floodwaters could cover it. The materials used bear this out too. They used burnt brick and they cemented it with bitumen or asphalt to keep it watertight. And if you remember, Noah covered the outside of the ark with pitch. So here they are building this tower so anyone inside of it would be safe, just like Noah was on his ark. They were out there in the middle of the desert building their own little ark. And they were not trusting God who said, I will never flood the world again. So it's not only not trusting God, it's also working against God. This is an example of not believing the very words and promises of God. He promised to never flood the world again. And just like the Tower of Babel, supposedly protecting the world from another worldwide flood, we have an exact repeat of this in our modern society in the lies about what? Does anybody know what I'm going to bring up? They're building something so that they will be safe from the floodwaters of the world. Global warming. We need to act because the world will flood. You can hear it on the news every single day in America. Turn on the news and you're going to hear something about how we need to save our planet because we are melting the polar ice caps, we're melting the mountain glaciers, and the world is going to flood. And this is the Tower of Babel that we are seeing on the news right now. We cannot trust God's word that says that this will never happen again. We need to act. Every twisted thought of man, whether it's the murder of the unborn, and who promotes that in our society, which party? Whether it's promoting vegetarianism in order to save the wildlife, which party promotes that? Or fighting against the capital punishment of killers, which party fights against that? The reason is always, always, always the reje rejection of God's truth and God's word. Always. And we have one group that is actively working that way. I'm not trying to say that the other party is any better, but they are not working against God's word. These people on this particular party are working against God's word. And if you don't like to hear that, I am sorry. You need to do your own due diligence and read these documents. I've read them and I can tell you that this is their agenda. Second thought of the day. Unless the Lord builds the house. This is verses 5 and 6. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord came down. Before the flood, an entirely different type of terminology was used. Before the flood, there was still a place where the Garden of Eden was located. Before the flood, the Lord talked with Adam. The Lord talked with Eve. And the Lord talked with Cain. Before the flood, there were cherubim who were placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to protect its way in. Before the flood, he spoke with Noah in several different ways. And he established a covenant with him. And before the flood, the Lord is the one who shut the door of the ark. But after the flood, Noah went out of the ark and it says nothing about the Lord opening the door. After the flood, Noah built an altar on the top of the mountain of Ararat and the smoke rose even higher. It soared up to where his throne is. His presence since the time of the flood is symbolically on high. And now the Lord decides to descend and bring about judgment and to inflict discipline on those who have so quickly and so shamefully been disobedient to the commands that were given to their father Noah. The omniscient Lord of creation is coming down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And just think about the Lord every single time that we have a new building which we erect for some false religion that pops up. And every single time the Lord's visitation must be exactly the same. I'm sorry, this is not the way. Can't you get something so simple, so tender, so heartfelt right? I have done it all. And all you need to do is simply accept it by faith. We come to verse 6. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. And they have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. And it is true. Man is created in God's image. 
and is capable of amazingly great things. But the things that we do and the things that we make have ultimately only one of two end purposes, either the glorification of self or the glorification of God. Those are the only two end purposes for every single thing we do. If it is for self, it is a futile attempt at achieving immortality. But if it is to glorify God, then it will truly, in some capacity, be a work of eternal significance. The Bible says as much in the 127th Psalm. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. The Lord came down and he looked upon the work of men in the land of Shinar and he was displeased. But just a little over 2,000 years after that, the Lord himself accomplished his own great work and it was marvelous. We read about it in Isaiah 52 and 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, meaning Jesus. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And that brings us to our third thought today. In a world of confusion, this is verses 7 through 9. Verse 7 says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Come, let us. Once again, the nature of God is brought into the pages of the Bible. Yes, there is one God, but he refers to himself in the plural, us, just like he did in Genesis chapter 1, just like he did in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to see it again in Isaiah chapter 6. And we see the Trinity revealed in Zechariah chapter 12 and in elsewhere throughout the Old Testament. And just as he is revealed throughout the entire New Testament. When Jesus said, go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the word name in Greek is onoma, it's singular, in the name of these three which are one. Come, let us, come let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. The most effective way of getting people to quit a task is to simply throw that task into confusion. Try starting a church and get confusion on it and the church will never get finished. God confused the language of the people. In which way? I said in verse 1 that I was going to explain it. I'm going to explain it now. He did it by their lip, by their speech, not by the words. And this explains why all the way back, right at the very first verse of this chapter, the idea of the language was divided into those two concepts. As the people were working, their speech became confusing to one another to the point where one person would ask for a brick and another person would bring a stick. One would ask for some clay and the other would ask, what did you say? In no time at all, I'm sure fights broke out, people killed each other, and they decided to pick up their family and bail out on the great task which he had set out and starting. Here then is the miracle of God which disperses all of the people of the world and which caused devolution from one culture and from one religion to a cacophony of cultures and a world rife with all type of religious beliefs which encompass this world even to, even to this day. All around the world we've got new religions popping up almost by the moment. But by another miracle of God, the world's people are reunited into the family of God and we all speak with one religious voice, not as individuals, but through God's manifestation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the true universal translator that we were talking about before the sermon. Everyone who has been reunited into God's family through his shed blood can understand each other because of the work of Jesus Christ. And this is never more evident than Acts chapter 2, which is the day of Pentecost. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. 
And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We then hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And you wonder why we spent so much time in chapter 10 talking about the table of nations. Man, half of them were just listed right here. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? In three more weeks, we are going to, once again, celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit and the uniting of all believers under one head, which is Jesus Christ. Regardless of our physical looks, regardless of our cultural backgrounds, regardless of what language we speak, God has accepted us through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, and the powerful sealing of His Holy Spirit. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you've accepted Him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says the Holy Spirit seals you, and it is a done deal. You are eternally saved by the power of God. It can never be taken away. Verse 8, So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. In Genesis 10, we read about Eber, I mentioned him earlier, and his sons, and one was named Peleg. And we spent a couple minutes talking about Peleg last week. We read this. For in his days, meaning Peleg's, the earth was divided. The entire reason that that description of him was included was to tell us that the people of the earth were divided at that time when he lived. It was not a division of the lands into continents. Instead, it was a division of the people by their word or by their speech. As they moved outward, their increasingly difficult languages were individualized around the world. They developed written languages to assist them in their lives and to keep their cultures tied together. One of my favorite of all written languages is the Korean alphabet. Despite looking really complex, I don't know if you've ever taken time to look at Korean, just open any box nowadays and it was made in Korea. You see all this writing on there and it looks complicated. It looks like maybe Chinese or Japanese and you think, how could I figure that out? And I got to tell you something, it is one of the simplest languages of all to read. Speaking it is another matter. It's a little difficult speaking Korean, but to learn to read it, if pro properly taught, is really a cakewalk. I attended a Korean church for about three or four years and I wanted to learn to read it. And so I went online and I looked at all of these sites and I almost gave up. And the reason why is because Koreans do not know how to teach Korean. But then I clicked on a site that was developed by, anybody guess who developed it? A Jewish guy. His instruction, this guy, his instruction allowed me to learn to read, to learn to read Korean in about three or four days. It is that simple. It is a marvelous language. It was originally developed by their great king who went back to the 1400s, a guy named Sejong. And it is a masterpiece, and I mean this, of both artwork and functionality. And it is beautiful in its simplicity and ease of use. But this is what they did. They developed this language so that they would keep the culture together. We were talking before the sermon about the Chinese have many dialects. They've got Mandarin and Cantonese and Sichuan, all these different dialects. They can't understand each other. I mean, these are absolutely foreign languages by the speech. But the written Chinese alphabet binds them together as a people. You can go to any province in China and they all read the same languages and that keeps them united. So you see how these two concepts are working together. We come to verse 9. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Just as in verse 8, the credit for the dispersion of the people is given solely to the Lord. It is he who directs the winds which blow across the nations and through time. And it is he who fashions the changes in everything. And I mean everything. From the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly to the number and size of the nations. He is in complete control of every single thing that is going on around us. And if you have something wrong in your life right now, and you think there's something that's bothering you or something that's tearing your life apart, he knows it already. If he can direct nations with millions and billions of people, 
then he can direct our lives if we will simply get on our knees and allow him to guide us and to learn his word. Now I want to tell you about the restoring of Israel. Something that pertains to the Tower of Babel right here is in Israel, if you go there, you can go into like they're having a dance at night and there'll be 80 people dancing or, or hundreds of people dancing, but there will be 80 individual languages being spoken in this one little dance hall of a couple hundred people. It's amazing. And the reason why is because God says, if you don't obey me, this is the second time at the Roman exile, I'm going to disperse you all over the world. And literally, there were there's little synagogues out in the middle of Japan. They've got them in the most remote places of Indonesia or China or all over the world, these Jews. And now they're being regathered back into the land, just as God prophesied it would happen. And they have this language ability in Israel. And I can't think of anything more astonishing than the fact that they have these languages. And what does that give them the ability to do? They can spy on every single country on earth because they have people from every country on earth. All they need to do is turn on their little spy things and start listening. And they have people that resemble the people of all the cultures of the earth. That's why when you see something in Iran, like you hear about somebody blowing up in the middle of the streets of Iran and nobody knows what who it was it was probably some jewish guy that is undercover there that speaks persian because his family's been there for two thousand years and these people are working against his homeland and so they just put a little bomb on the side of their car and off they go into eternity and so you can see how god has orchestrated this so that the jewish people have the ability and the capability to defend themselves despite being the smallest little nation right there in the middle of all of this trouble and all of this trial God is ultimately and infinitely wise in how he deals with his people and in the redemptive plans of his Bible. So don't worry about your own lives if you're struggling. If he can figure all these big issues out, he certainly can handle the smaller issues of our own lives. That's why we're here for each other and to pray for each other and to petition the Lord right to his face. So just keep those things in mind of how he has woven all these things together for his good and for his glory and for his name. Anyway, the city that the people left behind was called Babel, which means confusion. And it's explained right there in that same sentence. It says, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And spiritual Babylon is the city of confusion even to this day. In the place where religion is developed by man, there is confusion. In the place where people attempt to please God through their own works, there is confusion. And in the place where God's word is disregarded or distorted, there is confusion. God has given us his word, and his word reveals his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ reveals the unseen father to us. There is nothing confusing there. Apart from this revelation, though, this book that he has given us, there is only confusion and there is only disorder. But when we open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of God's word, confusion is replaced with right thinking, anger is replaced with peace, and discontentment is replaced with the hope of a better life at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So before I read you a poem I've written for the Tower of Babel, I want to just give you all an opportunity to hear why Jesus came, in case you've never heard this. Jesus came because we have sinned against God and we are separated from God. And the Bible bears this out in passage after passage like the one today. We are working against God and we're working to be like God and trying to work our way up to his throne. And he has rejected that. We've sinned and he said, I will take care of this. You have earned death through your sin, but I will give you life through my son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life that we cannot live. And then he gave his life up as a substitute for our own. And he says, if you will simply put your trust in what Jesus Christ has done, I will give you his righteousness and I will wash away your sins and I will grant you eternal life. Not because you deserve it, but simply because this is how I operate. I am infinitely merciful and I am infinitely truthful and I will take away all of the anguish of your soul and I will restore to you peace and contentment and fellowship with me. So if you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, I would ask you to do that today. He loves you enough to do all of this. Do that one thing for him and call on his name. This is a poem called The Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that at last to the plain of, in the land of Shinar they did reach. And the people dwelt there from the greatest to the least. Then someone said, come, let us make some bricks and let us bake them thoroughly through and through. 
They had brick for stone and clay was used in the mix. And they had asphalt for mortar to bind the bricks two by two. Another said, come, let us build ourselves a city and also a tower whose top to heaven it will reach. Let us make a name for ourselves. To be scattered would be such a pity. Let's start building now. I know you understand my speech. We will work our way to God, and by our deeds, heavenly streets, we will trod. We will reach the highest heights, and we will ourselves be gods, shining like heavenly lights. But the Lord came down to see the city and to view the tower built by the sons of men. And he shook his head, knowing it was a pity. They'd rejected him and his glory once again. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are united as one, and one language they all have to share in their task. If this is what they begin to do and what they've already done, then nothing they intend will be very far from their grasp. Come, let us go down, and their language we will confuse, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them, giving their plan the blues, and they ceased building the city, the goal no longer in reach. Therefore, its name is called Babel, and confusion rules the place, because the Lord confused the language of the human race. And from there the Lord scattered them to all the corners of the earth. And the Lord filled the world with many types of speech. Across the globe, man has gone, spanning its entire girth. And also across the globe, man does the gospel teach. And the gospel unites us all to the glory of the Lord as we wait on his return, as promised in his word. Until he comes, we live by faith in the promises he's made and continue on in his strength and resting in his shade. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of the Tower of Babel that shows how utterly confused we are as people and how we can't get the simple things right. But thank you for the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which can save even the most confused soul if they will simply stop and think it through. You are God, you sit on your throne, and we owe you our love and our obedience. And yet instead we just turn away and do crazy things. Help us to focus our eyes on Jesus Christ the author and perfecter of our salvation and help us never ever to stray from you but keep us held in your hands because our propensity is to stray but you are a great God and you can keep us so please do that help us always to focus on Jesus and it's in his beautiful name we pray amen let me go ahead and uh, give you the benediction and we'll all be dismissed Ya'er Adonai Panav Eliecha Vikunneka. Yisa Adonai Panav Eliecha Beyasem Lecha Shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.